And so if you would please read with me or follow along, I'm going to not actually read the song, but I'm going to read some verses leading up in verse 26. Let's start. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month which with her, son, with, with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, a weary world rejoices. That's the title of our Advent series. I think I, I think that there's probably a connection that that has with everybody here. We we feel the weariness of life in this world right now, don't we? It may be hard for some of you to even think about rejoicing uh, right now. If that's the case, I would say this Advent series is for you. That is that is what this is about. Advent is not just some prolonged, uh, stretched out Christmas season for those whose lives are just kind of firing on all cylinders. And so we just need more of a holly jolly Christmas. And so let's just stretch it out over a whole month because we just love Christmas and all of the trappings. That's, that's not what Advent is about. Advent is a season of waiting and hope. It's, it's, it's for those whose lives are marked by weariness and sorrow, really. It's for us in our weariness, for you and your weariness, even today, for me. The title of the Advent series obviously comes from the Christmas hymn we just sang, and I'll just say a few lines again. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining until He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. For yonder, that's not a word we use, but over there, uh, uh, breaks this new and glorious morn, this New and glorious morning breaks in with the arrival of our King, Jesus. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're focusing on during this time because Advent is a time of celebration. It's a time of rejoicing. And, and you'll see joy that, that runs through all of these songs we're looking at in, in Luke 1 and 2 here. But oftentimes, especially it, it, the context of these songs and, and the context of our own lives right now, it can be hard to find a lot to celebrate if we're just simply looking at our circumstances, if we're just kind of you know checking the pulse of 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 the news headlines and all of those things. It's we have you know this worldwide pandemic still going on. We have sickness and death of loved ones. We have we have you know political strife. There's all kinds of change and all kinds of turmoil all around us 
in our in our lives directly and certainly in our surroundings. And so I just I was listening. Um, I've been listening to uh, some Christian radio this week, and and I've noticed there's a lot of new Christmas songs that have come out this year. I don't. I, I'm sure a lot of it's just practically everybody. There's a lot of new music coming out. Period this year. Uh, with everybody being quarantined and, and a lot of folks have been active in writing songs. And so there's been a lot of great music that's come out this year. But I noticed that there is a common theme in every Christmas song that I've heard this year. And it's this, it's this kind of melancholy. It's just this gloom, this sadness that's the backdrop for these songs of praise for the coming of Christ. And and as I was thinking about that and it just it's kind of struck me this week as I, I hear like two or three new ones in a row that I hadn't heard. And all of them at least started on that note of weariness and of trouble and discouragement. And and then, of course, there was a turn in the song and looking to Christ and how he comes is his answer. And some were better than others. But but you know what? The new songs honestly are sort of reflective of most of our old Christmas songs, the ones we've the older Christmas hymns. They they all tend to talk about that, the. The message that's coming across is, is this weariness, is this trouble. Oh, come, oh, come. Uh, comfort, that's what we need. Comfort and joy. And they, they born out of that same, same, same sadness and same longing. And so I would just say that's, that's really getting in touch with, with what we find in these biblical songs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think this quote's on the screen, he says the proper the proper celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. And that's what we're doing in this series. We as the weary world, we particularly as people, as God's children, as people of this book, the Bible, we we are looking forward to something greater that is yet to come. We are longing, we're waiting, we're waiting for the long-expected Messiah. And that's one of the twin purposes of Advent. Advent isn't only looking back to the first coming of Jesus, it's also this anticipation of Christ's return. And we're standing in that gap even as we walk through this series. So, again, our song this week is, is Mary's song. And, it, and, it, and the Magnificat is what it's historically been called, but that comes from the first word of, of this song, in Latin, in the Latin translation, or we would say in English, O Magnify. And so the song's recorded in Luke 1. And so I want to first, and we're going to spend a good bit of time just entering into the context of this particular song. And so the immediate context of how it fits in the narrative, the, the socio-political context in which Mary uh, had this encounter from the Lord and, and sang this song, and then the wider redemptive context, and then we'll actually get to the song. So just... In, our, in the more immediate context, it's been 400 years as we enter into Luke chapter 1 since God has spoken. 400 years. 400 years since there's been any kind of prophetic utterance. Over 500 years since there's been any kind of visible demonstration of God entering into this world. Any kind of sign, any kind of miracle or vision or anything like that from God. The last word that they had was through the prophet Malachi. I think Eric mentioned this couple weeks ago, Malachi 4.2, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And in verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. And then, silence. Nothing. 
for over 400 years. 400 years. And so for over 400 years, generations have come and generations have gone. Faithful Jewish families. You could just imagine rehearsing these promises and this expectation week after week, year after year, for centuries. Waiting. Children sitting in you know, their parents' laps and their grandparents' laps just at... And, and, and they're saying, you know, there's a day coming when the Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing in His wings. And they're saying, Papa, when, when is that day? What does that mean? Is it today? And saying, I, you know, I, 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 don't know, I don't know when it's going to be, but it's definitely going to happen. It's coming. It's coming. And one gener- generation after another goes to their graves having read and rehearsed and clung to those same prophecies, but still silence. And that's the world that Mary was born into and raised in, being raised in. And so, so, so now we kind of look at the it, 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 sort of the what it was like to live in this day for her. And so, for for a few people, it was the best of times. This was good. This was a great time to be alive. The world was ruled by Caesar Augustus. He was this powerful ruler, and the whole world, much of the world, was united around this one guy. And there was. They were enjoying a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity as a nation. And, and so with all of this success, Augustus, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus proudly called himself the Son of God. That was the title he claimed for himself. All kinds of authority. The economy flourished under his rule. You could travel and communicate like never before in the history of the world. And so he, he promised the world to civilization and he, he delivered it to many. But not all. Now, then there was Herod. He's another player here. Herod was Caesar's kind of puppet king, ruled over Judea, which is where Jesus was born, the land where Jesus was born. So his day was this golden age, in particular for construction. And so many of the beautiful, massive buildings that people still travel to Israel and see, and all of these sites that people see today, these were built during that time. Herod was this incredibly wealthy and Powerful man, probably one of the, some scholars say, one of the richest men to ever have lived. So for those connected with Herod, obviously there was great, there was great benefit if you were spared of his paranoia. Because he was paranoid. So life could be very good for some, though. It was the best of times. But for, for most people, it was really, it was the worst of times. It was hard. Particularly for those Jews living in Judea. It was a time of destitution and pain and despair and of doubt, of longing, weariness. They knew God's promises. They knew that God had given them this land where they lived. And yet, and they knew that God had promised to bless those who blessed them, to curse those who cursed them. But as they looked around, they found it kind of hard to imagine that those things, how things had gone so wrong, because it was so much different than they expected. The Roman rule, despite being an era of, of at least superficial peace, it was awful for them. They were not experiencing the good things that God had promised to them in the land. When, when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census was, be, was to be taken throughout the land, through the entire Roman world for tax purposes, this was not a good thing for them. This was just an opportunity for them to get squeezed for more taxes. And they were already taxed, at, at they most say, conservatively, at 70% or higher, some say up to 90% they were being taxed. 
And so as you can imagine, people were just scraping by just to put enough food on the table, subsistence living at, at, at minimum, and just barely eking, uh, eking, surviving. And so some were going into debt and losing their land. Uh, that's the land that had been in their family for generations. That's the land that God promised to them. And having to let it go, it's being taken from them. Injustice was a way of life. This was just par for the course. Herod was, again, paranoid. He killed thousands of people just because he suspected that they were plotting against him. Tens of thousands of people were, in, were, were forced into labor for him, enslaved by him, essentially, working for, under brutal conditions with, for next to nothing so he could keep his building projects going on. The people were hungry. They were poor. They were downtrodden. They were weary, and there was little they could do to change it. That's this world. There, there was no way for them to fight the system in that context, that political context. There were people that tried. There was a group of zealots that, that tried to take matters in their own hands and rebel and, and, and by force, but it just made things worse for most people because it was squashed. So you can just, you can just I just want you to sense the despair the fatalism of this context of what we're reading here. Will Herod, will Caesar, will, they, will, will their sort, will their type, will they, will they always be on the throne? They seem, they seem uh, unstoppable. God, You promised to bring peace and justice and prosperity. So why are they still in charge? These rascals. A whole nation of people waiting, weary, Desperate. So say that and just connect us. You, you may find yourself asking similar questions today. Expressing similar doubts. God, have you forgotten me? God, if you're in charge, why this? Why, why now? God, how long? How long, O oh Lord? Why am I going through all of this? Why does it seem like you're not in charge? Collectively, not just individually, but collectively, we wonder, Lord, where are you? People are mocking you. The wicked are prospering. Outrageous lies are being heralded as if they're truths. And so enter into the sense of longing. Enter into this waiting, this anticipation into this silence. Again, this is, this is part of Advent. It's not just celebration. It's waiting. It's longing. And so into this world, God shows up. And we, we saw this two weeks ago and we see it again today. He shows up through an angel. Not, not really in a big, public, flashy way though, right? Not with some you know spectacular, cosmic, global, or even regional event. It's not that. In a very, very private way, as Eric led us in a couple weeks ago, the, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah alone. And he says, I know you're old. I, I know your wife is old. I know she can't have kids. But she's going to give birth to a boy who's going to be the forerunner of the promised Messiah. Zechariah says, that's impossible. It's not happening. What are you talking about? So he's muted by the angel. And again, we walk through this. But God had spoken. Now, nobody really knew that. Nobody certainly understood the significance of what that meant. But still, the silence had finally been broken when the angel came and spoke to 
to Zechariah. And so then the angel Gabriel himself shows up a little a little later in this backwater village of Nazareth that we just read a moment ago. This little teenager from this nowhere town of Nazareth. And so this poor Jewish peasant girl in this very despised part of, of, of northern Israel, the angel shows up. Again, no fanfare, but God speaks this incredible message to her that we read. By the power of the Holy Spirit, she's going to conceive. She's going to give birth to a son. Not just going to be any son, but she's going to, he's going to be the heir to David's throne, the Holy One, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the King of Israel. It's incredible. And Mary and Joseph are to call Him Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for He will save His people from their sins. So again, she's puzzled by this crazy announcement that she's just heard from this angel, which is crazy enough. And she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And, a virgin? and Gabriel's answer is simply the Holy Spirit. That's how. And then he adds, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you understand that? I would read that, but do we believe that? We must, we have to keep this in our mind. All right, there's, I'm going to move on. With that answer from the angel, Mary rests in what God has spoken. She tells Gabriel, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me all that you have said. And she believes God. So, the angel, again, tells Mary that she has this, uh, this co- about her cousin, Elizabeth, who's much older than her, and, and, and she's also conceived a son. She's already six month into her, m- months into her pregnancy. So Mary wastes no time going to see Elizabeth, and, and she's, she's thinking she's probably the only person that can possibly understand what's going on. And so she goes there. She makes this long 70-plus mile journey to get to Elizabeth from Nazareth down into the hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth live. And so you can imagine this reunion, these two uh, ladies meeting, gray-haired Elizabeth, um, who thought she'd never be able to have a child, and yet here she is three months away from delivering a baby boy who has this incredible prophetic significance attached to his birth. And then here's teenage Mary, who's a virgin, and, 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 and now she's pregnant, though, barely pregnant, we presume. Probably not even showing yet at this point. But so, and, and Mary, and as Mary greets Elizabeth, the text says that she, she greets Elizabeth and John leaps within her womb. J- jumps. And so, probably taking her breath away. So she'd felt, she'd probably felt John move a lot at this point. Again, six months along, he's probably kicking and moving all kinds of ways. But this was different. She saw the connection. And so Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she begins to prophesy and say some things to Mary. Verse 42, look with me. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Oh, again, that's, that could be its own sermon right there. But, but it's like these two things, John's leaping in Elizabeth's womb and, and this prophesying by Elizabeth, they, they act together like this ignition switch and it just sets Mary off in praise. And so the joy and the wonder and the hope and the faith that's just been welling up in her over these days and weeks possibly, it just now gushes out of her mouth in the form of praise. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And, 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 and what we're going to see again, these, 
this song and these other Christmas songs, like what we saw with Zechariah last week and his prophecy, and, and, and what we see that, that these are not, these are not, um, they don't sound like our Christmas songs. Now again, they're anticipating fulfillment, but they sound very Old Testament like. So Mary's song, like Zechariah's song last time, these, these, these songs straddle the Old and New Testaments, we could say. So she's not really singing You'll notice she's not really singing about baby Jesus' birth. That's not the focus of the song. Her song is prompted by the conception of Jesus and the fact that He's in her womb, the Messiah, but it's bigger than her having a baby. There's more to this song. So verse 46 again, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty." He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. That's the song that we're going to look at here for a few minutes. And so the, the thread that ties the song together, I think you can see it's tried to emphasize its mercy. It's God's mercy to Mary, His mercy to those who fear the Lord, His mercy to Israel. And so, so that's what we're going to see. Martin Luther wrote about the purpose of the song and the impact that it should have on us as we read it, as we look at this song. And he said this, Mary's song is for, one, the strengthening of our faith, two, for the comforting of the, all of those of low degree, and three, for the terrifying of all the mighty ones of earth. We are to let the hymn serve this threefold purpose, for she sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. And so let's listen to Mary sing the song for us and that we might sing it after her this morning. All right, so three encouragements. That's how I want us to walk through this psalm and the kind of three progressions in the psalm. Three encouragements to weary saints. Are you weary this morning? This song is for you. This is encouragements for weary saints that we are to rejoice in Christ. First one is this. Weary saints, rejoice personally for God's redeeming mercy. Rejoice personally for God's redeeming mercy. So the first movement in the song is, is very personal. Notice verses 46 to 49. All those first-person pronouns. My, 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 me, me. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God and my Savior. So from her soul, her spirit, those are synonymous here, I believe, but from the deepest part of her being, the core of who she is, this is where this praise comes from, where her joy comes from. Now, again, I'm not sure if this was just some spontaneous song, if this is something she'd been writing in her mind as she was journeying those 70 miles to visit uh, visit Elizabeth. It doesn't really matter, but the, the Holy Spirit's been at work in her, and this praise just comes bursting out. And, and her words are, again, just oozing with Scripture. You have all of these Old Testament references and allusions, just... Look at the cross references in your Bible if you have those in your copy of the Scriptures. And so Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, Job, 
several psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and on. Again, not so much like direct quotations of all of those verses, but but the, the, these were her words reflect this deep and and very pervasive knowledge of the scriptures, the not just the 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 words of of the Old Testament, but the theology, the substance of of these scriptures. And so she's she's not what I want to say. She's not just seeing seeing uh, the Bible through the lens of her circumstances in life. She's seeing her life, her circumstances through the lens of the Bible. That's very important for us even today. Uh, she's not trying to fit the Bible into her story. She's trying to fit, see how she fits into God's story and what, what He's doing. And so Mary, filled with the soul of the Holy Spirit, sings this Scripture-soaked song of praise for God's mercy to her. God's mercy and being mindful of her. What she says, for looking upon her and God's mercy in redeeming her. Saving her, delivering her. And here's the thing that Mary clearly understood. And it was this is she stood in need of mercy. She stood in need of mercy. This is, this is why her boast is in the Lord. This is why she's rejoicing in God, her Savior. She is, she's not sinless. She's not perfect. She was not immaculately conceived. She's not the you know, co-redemptrix. She, like all of us, stood in desperate need of a Savior. And she knew it. She needed a Redeemer. She knows she's a sinner. And only sinners need a Savior. And so, and her Savior, however much she comprehends it at this time or not, is in her womb. Mary, you, I, we, we need a Savior. This is our need. We're born in this condition. We, we didn't just, we weren't born just needing a little boost from God so that we could improve our lives. We, 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 we don't just need a few tips on how to get our act together. We don't just need a few rules and new, better rules to reform ourselves. We don't just need to know how to succeed in life. We need a Savior. We need a Savior like Mary needed a Savior because we're, we're born lost. We're born alienated from God because of our sin. We're hopelessly lost, apart from God in His power intervening to rescue us. So she goes on, verse 48, for he has, he has looked upon the humble state of His servant. She's not proud. She doesn't have her head held high. Look, man, God chose me. What a, what a, it makes sense. She knows she's undeserving of His mercy. Nevertheless, look at the, behold, that's an expression of surprise, just, Bewilderment, shock, wonder. Behold, who would have ever thought such a thing? How could this possibly be explained? This is what she's saying. And the only answer is mercy. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That doesn't mean everybody's going to hail Mary. That just means that they're going to see her life as this trophy of sovereign grace and mercy. Undeserved favor. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is not seen in what God allows Mary to do for Him. God's mercy is seen in the great things that God does for Mary. It's holy. It's His name. And so this, this is a very personal song of praise for God's mercy to redeem 
to deliver. This is a song, as Martin Luther says, for us now to sing after her, isn't it? Are you singing praise to God for His redeeming mercy? Does the reality of God's saving grace in Christ still just overwhelm you? Where you say, oh, magnify the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. He's looked upon me in my humble estate. The only explanation is mercy. That's it. Well, this, brothers and sisters, this is, this is a message we desperately need to cling to right now. Again, mindful that, that many of us are very weary. We're worn out. We're exhausted. We're, we're struggling along right now. It's discouraging and we're, we're having a hard time. I, and again, I, I hear those in the Christmas songs I'm hearing on the radio. I was at a, a, a Christmas concert up at Covenant College and Carson was in the choir up there and so on up to that Thursday night. And the theme was Be Ye Glad, which is an old acapella some of you remember the group Glad from the 90s, a Christian a cappella group. Carson thought it was this new song that he had learned. I was like, no, I knew that from when I was a kid. But, uh, uh, but they, they, that was one of the songs they sang, and I talked with the, the director afterwards, and he was just saying, I just, I just, there's this heaviness in the world and on, on our campus and in our churches right now. And I just need there's this command of Scripture to rejoice, to be glad. And that song talks about, again, like most good Christmas songs do, just these days of confusion and restless remorse and, and, and we feel like we're wounded and cold as a corpse. And, and it goes on, from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid in full, so be ye glad. Every debt you ever had has been paid in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad, be ye glad. And, and that's, I think that's just a beautiful thing for us right now. To revel, to, to own these words, to sing these words after Mary. And Lord, praise you. It's, it's hard, but I praise you for your mercy to redeem me, a sinner. I don't deserve this. This is a message we're going to revel at in just a moment as we come to the table. Second, I've got to be quick. Second, Message, encouragement to us, weary as we are, weary, weary saints, rejoice continually for God's reversing mercy. So she's not just focusing on herself and her baby in this song, the child she will have, but she focuses on the Messiah for her people. Verse 50, and His mercy, there's our word, is for all those who fear Him from generation to generation, continually. And, and this is why Mary's song is our song. It's a song of mercy for every generation to sing, including ours. We're not exempt. It's a song of praising God. And what we're going to see as we walk through these verses for His this, this radical reversing mercy. We know about reversing mercy, don't we? We've been through Esther this fall. It's redemptive reversals that we've seen and God bringing down those that seemed, uh, seemed uh, unstoppable in their in their, in, as, as tyrants, and God brings them down and He raises up the lowly in these very unexpected ways. And that's exactly what Mary's singing about here, the subversive mercy of God to overthrow the wicked, to raise up those of humble estate. And so, and again, you think of the context in which she's living with Caesar and Herod and all of this injustice and all of this silence waiting for these promises to come to pass. 
She's singing about God's overthrow through Christ of the proud in this world and the lifting up of the lowly. This, this young peasant girl of no, of no renown in this backwater village. This muscular song of robust faith. Believing God's promises. And, and so there's this contrast in this, in this, in this song here between the proud and the humble. Those of humble estate, the hungry versus the proud, the mighty, the rich. And those, those expressions are used not just here, but throughout scripture of, in terms of how we relate to God. That's what this is about. It's not that, you know, being poor and lowly and being a peasant is, makes you morally superior to, you know, the wealthy, uh, and being a, a prominent leader or something like that. That's not what he's saying, but it's a contrast in terms of how people see themselves before the Lord. That's what the contrast is. The lowly, the humble, they honestly assess themselves rightly in light of God's holiness, in light of their sinfulness. They understand, Lord, I can't, but you can. I, I don't know, you know. I'm not able, you're able. That's, that's what the contrast is here. And it's a recognition God's wiser, He's greater, He's more glorious than I am, He's more powerful, powerful than I am, He's more gracious than I'll ever be. And, and that's what it means. That's what it means to fear the Lord, verse 50. It's not, you know, being, t- oh, I missed my quiet time, God's going to give me COVID or something like that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. It's just this, it's just this that, that, that it's feeling rightly small before God. I can't fix me. I can't fix it. I can't make it on my own. We can't control things. We can't do it, but Lord, you can. That's what it means to fear the Lord. God's mercy is, is lavished upon those who fear the Lord. And so those lowly, they, they fear the Lord. They stand in contrast to the proud, the mighty, the rich of this world. The proud ones who are clamoring for position and status and privilege and, and, and wealth. And, and they refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon God. And so those who see their need for God will be shown mercy. They will be lifted up. Those who refuse to acknowledge their need for God will be brought down. That's what we see in verses 50 to 53. It's mercy to reverse. Mercy to reverse. And notice, it's a song of faith. Because Mary's singing in past tense about something that that at the time she's singing, it hasn't happened yet. And yet she's so confident that it will. And it's honestly, it's so unlikely that this could even be conceived that this could happen, what she's saying. But she's singing this in full confidence that the Lord's going to bring this to pass. And so she announces God has brought down rulers and sent the rich away empty. He, he has lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things. No, no armies have been scattered. No tyrants have been toppled at this point. No thrones have been overturned. Rome, Herod, they're still, still apparently in full control. But she knows God will do what, she, what He's promised through the Messiah in her womb. And so, so the, the Lord, the Lord is, is over all. I just, that's a great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. You know, I know sometimes we think God, God just cares about the spiritual religious stuff. Like he, if there were aisles, in, if, if we, the whole world was Walmart or something like that, you know, he's kind of confined to the spiritual aisle. That's where God hangs out. That's, his, that's He's kind of confined there. He's over everything. He's over all. Caesar, that what, what encouragement that means to us is Caesar and Herod, they will not have the last word. There's no modern ruler today that, that 
pounds the podium and, 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 and acts like he's in charge. They don't have the last word. No court has the last word. Injustice doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Cancer doesn't have the last word. Christ has the last word. He's coming. He's coming. And God didn't send His Son again just to reign over that religious part of life, over the church part. He sent His Son to ultimately set all things right. And He will. He will. It will be, his reign will be fully realized one day. And every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more mourning, no more sadness, no more death. For the old order of things will have passed away. If you're longing for that, song is for you to sing after Mary. She sang good news to us, for us, that we can sing with her. Lastly, weary saints, rejoice expectantly for God's remembering mercy. And I basically can just read these verses, verses 54 to 55. But she concludes in a very powerful way. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. We just say two things about this mercy. It's sovereign mercy. It's, and what I mean is he didn't choose Israel because they were greater, special, you know, more number, more impressive. It was simply God set his sovereign love upon them. We know this scripture. He's helped them in remembrance of their strength, no, of his mercy. And God's mercy is a covenant mercy. He keeps his promises to Abraham, to David, to the nation. All of God's promises, the gifts, the callings of God are irrevocable, Paul tells the Romans in reference to Israel. So Mary understands this, and she, she, she understands that His mercy endures. God will keep His promises forever. And exhibit A for her is that child she's carrying in her womb. It's in Christ that all of God's promises are yes and amen. What God promises you can count on. He shows mercy to remember all He has promises to His people. To Israel, to you, brothers and sisters. Weary saints, remember this. Expectantly, expectantly, His remembering mercy. So Mary gives us a picture in her song here of God's, uh, God's mercy. It's an enormous picture, isn't it? It's one we've had to kind of race through, I realize. But she's not just, again, recounting Bible verses and, and recounting history. She is, she's magnifying God for this mercy. She's singing this song of praise. Redeeming mercy, reversing mercy, remembering mercy. And she sings this song knowing she's carrying the Savior of the world within her womb. It's incredible. This Christ child, the Messiah, would soon be born to her. And so she understands she's part of something that really goes way beyond her. This isn't just about her having a baby, something that would make a really neat birth story and could be on TLC or something like that. This She can't possibly fully comprehend all that this would mean at the time, obviously. A little later, after Jesus is born, Eric's going to look at this passage in a few weeks, the Sunday after Christmas. Uh, and, and, and in a few weeks, after, so old Simeon will say to her as they're there in the temple that her soul would be crushed in grief. He'll say, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. And so when Mary would later stand at the foot of the cross and see her Son, who's now a man, being nailed 
to a cross who could possibly imagine the fullness of what Simeon's words would mean? Who could imagine the deep piercing that her soul went through there? Yet in the bigger picture, this is the very climax of God's redemptive plan. This is what her song when she says, Oh, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. This was what it was all for and where it was leading. This is how it would be accomplished. It was foundational to God's plan. Her son, God's son, his death on the cross. This is the greatest display of redemptive, of of reversing, of remembering mercy. And this is what we're going to sing about. This is what we're going to come and remember at the table this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you, again, as we prayed in the beginning, I pray again, Lord, enlarge our hearts now as we have opened the Word and as we come and eat and drink together, even as we sing together now, Lord, to to better apprehend the fullness of the gift that is Jesus to us. And as we apprehend that, Lord, just set our minds fixed on the hope of better things to come with His return. And so use use the bread, use the cup to solidify these things, not just in our our minds and our thoughts, but also drive them deep down these realities into the the deepest convictions of our souls and and to be expressed even in our affections today. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.